Michelle is gone today, so there is no warehouse worship for our uh, first through fourth graders, but we do have children's church for pre-K and kindergarten, so if you are uh, one of those cuties, you can leave the room now. Um, we were at camp last week with the youth, and uh, two of the, we heard a lot of different speakers, but two of the guys we heard, uh, one of the guys' name was Brandon Puffer, and anybody who's an Houston Astros baseball fan, we got any of those in the room. Milton Wade, where are you? Brandon Puffer was a baseball uh, pitcher for the Houston Astros for a little bit. He pitched with some other organizations, but he came and he shared his, his story one morning. And uh, man, his story is this, man, he just grew, he spent his whole life uh, trying to make it in professional baseball. And he finally got there and uh, he ruined it, right? He was so consumed with baseball uh, that he, he lost his family, he lost uh, his freedom, he ended up uh, becoming addicted to uh, some drugs and alcohol and made a terrible decision one night and ended up spending five years in prison <laughs> and uh, went from the top to the bottom like that. And, uh, but his story is powerful because uh, he says prison is really what saved me. Right, going to prison and having everything stripped away was what, what saved me. And I, I realized what was really uh, true about the world. And I needed that, right? Um, we, we heard from another guy. His name is Caleb Freeman. He, uh, his granddad is one of the uh, speakers at this camp. And about a year and a half ago, he was in this catastrophic wreck um, with an 18-wheeler uh, was in a coma for two months, really should not have survived and had any sort of life uh, or quality of life. But he, he has rehabbed and he has come out of it and God has really restored his walking and he, he can talk. And he talked at camp to us. And one of the things he talked about was not uh, the wreck as much, but really the wreck didn't ruin his life. It really saved his life. Um, his life, it didn't flip his life upside down and ruin it. No, no, he was walking away from the Lord, and it took that to give him some perspective, right? And I'm not a crier. Uh, some of you know me and know I'm really not emotional, uh, and I don't get into the emotion at camp either, but I sat there and listened to these two men tell these stories, and I, I, I cried. Uh, I can, I'm man enough to admit that. Uh, and <laughs> I thought about it this week, and I'm why? Why does hearing their story move me? Why, why does hearing anybody's story move us? Why does that cause this um, emotion? Why does that cause us to go, wow, wow, what, God, you are big. And you're, how, why does it cause us to wonder hearing somebody's story? Have you ever thought about that? I mean, it's not my story. I don't know Brandon Puffer. I don't know Caleb Freeman. I, he's not my son. He's not my dad, right? But it moved me, right? And I think that there's something true in that. And that's really one of the reasons we're doing one big story. Um, because when we tell the, a life story of somebody or a group of people, what we're doing is saying, okay, here's perspective. Here's, here's the whole thing. And when you paint the one big story for somebody or a group of people, what you see is what's really important. What you see is the ups and the downs and really how God was faithful through it all and how we were unfaithful. Uh, how how uh, tragedy can be turned into triumph. How 
You see what I'm saying? When we tell the whole big story, it gives us perspective on what's really important, and it also uh, it helps us to see God's faithfulness through it all. Right? And so if we just kind of get lost in the day-to-day and in the, the work and the to-do list and the kids and the whatever, and we forget to see the big story, and then we don't have perspective on our life, and we are prone, just like these people in this book, to walk away from God, to forget what's important, uh, to go our own way, right? So where we're at in the story, um, if you haven't been with us, God's chosen a people, he's given them this land, he's going to use them to bless all the families of the earth. They get in the land and they really screw it up. And God over and over is patient with them, but eventually he has to discipline them and he sends them into exile. And exile sounds really uh, vanilla, sounds really plain, but they went away as slaves. They were taken away from their land, they had nothing. They were in a foreign land that they didn't speak the language, they didn't know the people, they didn't know anything, and they spent 70 years in exile. Uh, Most of us won't live that long. A few of us in the room already have, but 70 years is a long time for these people. I want to skip to the end of our our time today in Ezra. We're going to talk about the man Ezra. And I want to skip to the end because what he does at the end, once they've returned to the land, once they've come back, rebuilt the temple, rebuilt the walls, what they do is they tell their big story. They recount everything that's happened. Why? I mean, to give them some perspective on that God has been faithful even when we failed. And so I want to start there before we talk about the specifics of how they rebuild the temple and all that stuff. So it's actually found in the book of Nehemiah. I know that's really confusing. Why is Ezra's story in Nehemiah and Zerubbabel's story in Ezra? I don't know. I didn't name the books of the Bible. So it's in Nehemiah chapter 9 is where we're going to read from as they tell their big story, as they talk about the big perspective. And here's what it says, verse 1 through 3, a little context. Now, On the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord, their God, for a quarter of the day. So if you think I'm going long today, 40 minutes, no. They spent about three hours reading the word. It says, and for another quarter of the day, they made confession. We're not going to do that today. We're not going to spend 40 minutes confessing our sin after this, but they did in worshiping and worshiped the Lord, their God. So they, they come together as an entire nation. There's only about 50,000 of them at this time. And they have a day where they read the book, they read, remind themselves of God's word and they confess their sins and they worship. Uh, Verse six, One of the things, this is what they they talk about. They tell their big story. Verse 6 says, You are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, and the earth, and all that is on it, and the seas, and all that is in them. And you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. They start with creation. God, you're the Lord of it all. You created us, you created it all, and you preserve it. You wanted relationship with us. That's what this was about from the beginning. Verse 7 through 9. Verse 6. I'm sorry, verse 7, yeah. It says, You are the Lord, 
the God who chose Abram and brought him up out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made him, made with him the covenant to give to his offspring the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, and the Girgashite. I practiced that this week. And you have kept your promise, for you are righteous. He says, not only did you create the world, <laughs> they skipped the part that we ruined it, we sinned. And it says, you chose Abram, and you said, I'm going to use you, I'm going to give you this land, I'm going to give you these descendants, and I'm going to use you to bless all the families of the earth. They're remembering their story. Verse 9, and you saw the afflictions of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants and all the people of the land. For you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers and you made a name for yourself as it is to this day. And you divided the sea before them so that they went through in the midst of the sea on dry land and you cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone into mighty waters. By a pillar of cloud you led them in the day, and by a pillar of fire in the night, to light for them the way in which they should go. You came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven, and gave them right rules and true laws, good statutes and commandments. And you made known to them your holy Sabbath, and commanded them commandments and statutes and a law by Moses your servant. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger, and brought water for them out of the rock for their thirst. And you told them to go in to possess the land that you had sworn to give them. God creates the world. We break it. God chooses a people to, to, to redeem the world. And they mess it up. But they end up in Egypt as slaves, right? And they recount their story to remember, you know what? God is the God who rescues us out of slavery. He brings us out of that. And they tell all these things that God did. They're remembering how God was faithful even when they weren't. How he provided for them even when they are in the wilderness. Verse 16 says, But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. But they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. How crazy is that? They wanted to go back to slavery. God has said, here's the way, follow it. And they're like, ah, Kind of like being a slave. It's, it's silly, right? It says, but you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and you did not forsake them. They're remembering, even though we rejected you and wanted our own way, you didn't reject us. 18, even when they had made for themselves a golden calf, and said, this is your God who brought you up out of Egypt. Not true. And had committed great blasphemies. You and your great mercies did not forsake them in the way. I'm sorry. You did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them by day. Nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way by which they should go. You gave them your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out and their feet did not swell. Um, my wife 
Pregnant ladies can, can sympathize with that, right? Their feet didn't even swell. God took care of them. He, he supplied their needs in the wilderness. And you would think all these mighty things he's done, all the ways he's shown them grace and forgiven them and, and sustained them, and you would think they would go, okay, let's walk in the way of the Lord. But that's not what happens. Verse 22, he does more for them. And you gave them kingdoms and peoples and allotted to them every corner. So they took possession of the land of Sihon, king of Heshbon, and the land of Og, king of Bashan. If you don't know, just sound confident, okay? If you don't know how to pronounce it, just sound confident. 23, you multiplied their children as the stars of the heaven, and you brought them into the land that you had told their fathers to enter and possess. So the descendants went in and possessed the land, and you subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gave them into their hand with their kings and their peoples of the land, that they might do with them as they would. And they captured fortified cities and a rich land, and took possession of houses full of all good things, cisterns already hewn, vineyards, olive orchards, and fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness." They come out of slavery. God takes care of them in the wilderness. He destroys their enemies before them, and he sets the table, a banquet before them, the land. And you would think, man, they're just going to walk. What does it say? Delight themselves in his great goodness. They're just going to, man, they're going to follow God. That's not true. That's not what they do. 26. Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you, and they cast your law behind their back. And killed your prophets, who had warned them in order to turn them back to you. And they committed great blasphemies. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of their enemies, who made them suffer. And the time of their suffering, they cried out to you, and you heard them from heaven. And according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors, who saved them from the hand of their enemies. But after they had rest, they did evil again before you. And you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven. And many times you delivered them according to your mercies. Do you see this rhythm? Man, God saves them out of something. He brings them into a better place and says, hey, walk with me. And they turn around and they go back. And at some point they turn and they cry out to God, God, save us. And he saves him and he brings him to a good place. And he, he says, come walk with me, delight in my goodness. And what do they do? They turn around and go right back to their slavery. This is their story over and over and over. And it's our story too. Verse 29. And you warned them in order to turn them back to your law. Yet they acted presumptuously and did not obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules which if a person does them, he shall live by them. And they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not obey. Many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through your prophets, yet they would not give ear. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the land. But hear this, 31. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them, nor forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. They're recounting their big story. And their story is a story of walking away from God time and time again. And God continuing to be faithful and redeeming them back. And then walking away from God and him going, come on, come over here. I do this with my two-year-old all the time. He's so forgetful, right? I mean, hey, we're going to your room to put on your clothes. Oh, Paw Patrol, right? I mean, he is so distracted and forgetful. 
hey, we're going to put on your swimsuit so we can go. He's so distracted. He can't focus. And that's how these people are. They turn their backs to him and they're going their own way. And when the father is saying, come, there's good over here. Walk with me. This is their story. Verse 32. Now, therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. Since the time we've been in exile, he says, don't, don't forget our suffering. 33, that you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully, and we have acted wickedly. Our kings, our princes, our priests, and our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your warnings that you gave them, even in their own kingdom. And amid your great goodness that you gave them and in the large and rich land that you set before them, they did not serve you or turn from their wicked works. And so behold, we are slaves this day in the land that you gave our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts. Behold, we are slaves. And its rich yield goes to the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please. And we are in, in great distress. This is their story up to this point. This rhythm of disobedience and rescue and God bringing them back and saying, walk with me. And them saying, no, we're going back our own way. This is their rhythm over and over and over. And some of you can can go, you know what, that's my life too, right? That's my rhythm. I'm so forgetful. And I go back to the things that I want. And I forget, man, there's life over here with God. They tell their story to remind themselves, but to also get perspective, right? Because they're coming back into the land. They're going to rebuild the temple. They're going to rebuild the walls. They're going to try to start over. And I think they're optimistic. Hey, maybe we can be the generation, right? We can be the ones who actually walk with God. We know that's where we're going to find life, so let's do it. And we know they won't <laughs> because that's not their story. Um, but God has uh, sent them into exile. That's where we left off last. So they spent 70 years uh, in total, from the time they were exiled and the temple was destroyed until the temple is rebuilt. Um, and again, I, how many in, no, I'm not going to ask that, never mind. Um, most of us won't live 70 years. Maybe, maybe some of us will. Some of us have already outlived that, but 70 years is a long time to be away from the land, right? If you think about their story, they have no way to have relationship with God unless there is a temple, it's not like us, where we know uh, uh, the Holy Spirit has come to live inside of us. We can worship uh, wherever we are. We can uh, know God through his word. That's not how they were. They had no way to know God. And so when they're in exile for 70 years, you think about it, many of the people who come back to the land had never been to the land, had never seen the temple, had no idea really what it was like to have a relationship with God. So in the course of their time in exile, so, man, there's so many world rulers, and I get them confused. So if I say it wrong, just don't tell my dad. Please forgive me that I don't know it like the back of my hand like he does. Um, but so they're captured first by the Assyrians, not the Syrians, the Assyrians. 
And they're taken away, and their capital was Babylon. But in the course of their exile, another kingdom takes over them called the Medo-Persians, or Persians. And their ruler at the time is a guy named Cyrus. And Cyrus declares at this point, uh, he, when he takes over, he says, I want y'all to go back and rebuild the temple. I don't, I don't want to keep you here. I want you to go back. And it, it always blows my mind when I read that because I'm thinking, why wouldn't he want them there? Why was he going to send them back and let them be their own and build their temple and worship their gods? But I think it points us to what uh, is really true about this, that God is the one writing this story. This is not the decision of Cyrus. This is not the decision of Assyria or Artaxerxes or whoever the ruler is. It's like Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it wherever he will. The king's heart is a stream in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it wherever he will. So I know we're probably uh, pretty Republican in this room, so right now you feel pretty good about that, right? Because we've got a Republican president, and maybe eight years ago we didn't feel so good, right? Maybe we're the other side. Maybe we're Democrat, and we're like, oh, it's not so good right now. And maybe we're hoping for a different change, right? And what I would say is, who cares, right? Because ultimately it's God. Right? The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it wherever he will. Pray for the king, whoever he is. Pray that he would go where God has him to go, and that's what happens here. Right? That's what happens here. God directs Cyrus to, y'all go back. That's in 538. It takes him 23 years um, to go back and to rebuild um, the temple. Uh, let's flip back to Ezra. If you're in Nehemiah, flip back to Ezra. Let's talk about the book. Let's go through the story together as they come back and return to the land. Uh, just so you know, it's on your sheet if you have it, but Ezra 1 through 6, uh, Ezra's not even alive at this time, I don't think. It's 60 years before he comes into the picture, but this is the story of how they come back to the land. Ezra 7 through 10 is uh, Ezra's time where he comes back and he sees this spiritual apathy, just total neglect for God and his ways, and he comes back to lead a spiritual revival. So let's talk first, Ezra 1 through 6. Uh, let's read Ezra 1, starting in verse 1 through 4. It says, In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, listen, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. He's the top dog in the world at this time. And it says, he has charged me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. And so Cyrus decrees this. He says, go back. And he doesn't just do that. He sends them with money. He says, we're going to pay for this. Uh, we, want, we want there to be a, a, a temple to the, to the Lord, Yahweh. And so he sends them back. And, and uh, 
there's no doubt that God's hand is in this, right? That God has moved Cyrus's heart to send them back. God is writing his story, and he is going to use his people to redeem. Um, Ezra 2, we're going to skip through a lot of this because it's a lot of numbers and names. But Ezra 2 lays out uh, all the people that returned. If you add up the numbers, it's roughly 50,000 people. So it's, let's just say, the size of Lufkin. And that sounds, oh yeah, that's, that's a big town for us Huntington people, right? Um, but we got to remember, they were, they were millions. They were more like Houston at their heyday. They were, they were uh, multiplying and they were filling the earth. They were this huge nation and they have dwindled to 50,000 people that are returning. Um, that is tiny. They only have the stuff on their backs. They only have what's been given to them, but they return and they return with this charge to rebuild the temple. Uh, flip to Ezra 3 and we'll see what they do. They don't return and build a city first. They don't return and rebuild the walls first. They return to rebuild the temple, partly because Cyrus tells them to, but really, uh, I think in some way their heart was good. They wanted to worship God. So, uh, Ezra 3 says, When the seventh month came and the children of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. Then arose Jeshua, the son of Josedek, with his fellow priest, and Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, with his kinsmen, and they built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. And they set the altar in its place, for fear was on them because of the peoples of the land. And they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, and burnt offerings morning and evening. Skip to verse 10. It says, And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord. So they built the altar. Now they've started work on the, the surrounding foundation. It says, when they had done this, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites, the son of Asaph, with cymbals, to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to God, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever towards Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. There is this celebration going on because we got an altar and we got a foundation, right? Let's, let's party, right? But it's not all good news. Verse 12 says, But many of the priests and the Levites and the heads of the fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, they wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house, this temple, being laid. Though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. So they, they rebuild the altar, they rebuild the foundations, and the people see it. And those who had never seen the old temple, they go, whoa, this is amazing, right? And they're, they're excited, they're pumped. We have a place, finally, where we can worship God. And it, and it is a good day. It is a great day for them. And the old men who were there, who had been in the old Israel and had been exiled for 70 years and had come back, so probably those who were in their 80s and 90s, they look at it and go, they weep, right? Because the glory of this temple that Solomon built with all of his money doesn't even compare to the one that they're about to build. I want to skip uh, a good portion of this. 
uh, 4, 5, and 6. Um, basically, this is a, a, a time period where they go back and forth with kings. Can we build this? Can we not build it? Are we supposed to? Do we not? And I, that's important. Go read it for yourselves. Uh, it teaches us something about perseverance, sticking it out when God tells us to do something, even if it's hard, even if people are against us. But I want to get to where Ezra comes in. So let's flip to chapter 7. Uh, this is roughly 60 years later, 60 years after they have finished the temple in 516 B.C. Think about it. They've rebuilt the temple. There's 50,000 of them. Um, I'm assuming they have some copies of the law. They have some, uh, they have priests. They have, they have the exterior stuff. They have a building. They have a place they can worship. They know how they're supposed to worship. Um, but what we know, because Ezra comes back, is they're not really worshiping. There's no real relationship with God. They got all the stuff. They got the exterior stuff. They got the, the, the things in place. But maybe it's not genuine. There's, there's no realness about their worship. And so Ezra comes back. If you look in uh, Ezra 7.10, this is what it says about who Ezra was. It says, For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord. Not to just know it. It says, and to do it. So he's, he's put it into practice. He knows it. He's put it into practice. And then it also says, and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. And Ezra comes back, and what he sees is something totally different than what he looks at in Scripture. He knows the law of the Lord, and he says, this is how we're supposed to relate to God. And then he looks at the people who he comes into contact, and he goes, uh, that doesn't look the same, right? Like, God says this is how we are to relate with him, but what I see over here is something totally different, and it breaks his heart. Because he knows, just like they recount later, the only way they can find life is walking with the Lord. And he's looking at them going, you guys, man, you've totally missed it. You got the temple. You got the stuff. You got all the exterior stuff. You got your place. But you are not walking with the Lord. If you look in chapter 9, when Ezra gets there, he sees the disarray in their relationship with God. And it breaks his heart. And this is what he prays in verse 6. Says, oh my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you, O oh God, to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads. For the days of our fathers, from the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt. And for our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been given into the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plundering. And to utter shame, as it is today. But now, for a brief moment, favor has been shown by the Lord our God to leave us a remnant and to give us a secure hold within his holy place, that our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery. For we are slaves, yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery. But he has extended to us the steadfast love before the kings of Persia, to grant us some reviving, to set up the house of our God, to repair its ruins, and to give us protection in Judea and Jerusalem. He says, look, man, we've really screwed up in our past, and we are guilty just like our fathers, and you have been gracious to even move Cyrus to let us come back and rebuild this temple. He's saying, 
wow, how gracious God is. But then he goes on to the bad news where his heart breaks. Verse 10. It says, and now, O our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments, which you commanded by your servant, the prophet, saying, the land that you are entering to take possession of it, it is a land impure with the impurity of people of the lands, with their abominations that have filled it from end to end with their uncleanness. Therefore, do not give your daughters to their sons, neither take their daughters for your sons, and never seek their peace or prosperity, that you may be strong and eat the good of the land and leave it for an inheritance to your children forever. What he's saying is this, our sin is this, is we have, we have intermarried. <laughs> and we look at that and go, wow, that's all you did, right? But what that represents is something really deep because what they're saying is we have compromised. We, we have totally really rejected God and we have, we have given in to the, the things that, of this earth, right? For us as Christians, it's a picture of sin that we have, we have dabbled with it. We've kind of allowed much of it to just kind of reside in our lives, in our homes. And Ezra's heart is breaking over their compromise. Verse 13, And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, seeing that you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserved and have given us such a remnant as this, Shall we continue to break your commandments again and intermarry with the people who practice these abominations? Would you not be angry with us until you consumed us, so that there should be no remnant, nor any to escape? O Lord, the God of Israel, you are just, for we are left a remnant that has escaped as it is today. Behold, we are before you in guilt. None can stand before you because of this. Ezra's heart breaks. Because he looks at it and goes, we should be walking with God. We should be following his ways. But in reality, all we've done is gone back to the same thing our fathers did. And his heart is broken for his people. So he, we're not going to read all this in chapter 10. He brings this to the leaders, to the priests, um, to, to all kinds of different leaders. And he, he just lays it out there. Look, here's your life. Here's the Bible. It doesn't match. What are we going to do about it? And their heart breaks. The leader's heart breaks because they look at it and go, you know what? Yeah, we've, we've tried to go back to slavery when God offers us life. And their heart breaks. And so they call all the people, all 50 plus thousand of them, and they come and they say, look, here's our life and here's God's word. And it doesn't match. What are we going to do about it? I'm not promoting this today, but what they do is this. <laughs> They go family by family, and they sit down with Ezra, and they say, have you sinned? Have you done this? Have you done this? Have you done this? And if you read the end of Ezra, they write down their names, okay? I'm not suggesting we do this today. I'm not suggesting we put up a billboard out in the hallway or a bulletin board and just, like, keep a track. Okay, who, who lusted this week? All right, let's put your name on that board. All right, who, who, who committed adultery this week? Let's put it on that board. Who lied this week, right? That's what he does. Why? Why is he so upfront? Why are these people so willing to let their names be written in this book? You know what? I intermarried. Why, why were they so quick to acknowledge their sin? I don't really have the answer to that question, but I think, I think it means they were serious about turning from it. I think it means that they said, you know what? I want to I be held accountable to this. 
I don't want to go back to this. I don't want to go back to slavery. I don't want to participate in this cycle of disobedience with my forefathers. I want to be, I want to be different. So I'm not saying we're putting up a billboard this week, but we do need some sense of accountability to say, you know what? I don't want to go back to my sin. I don't want to go back to that. I want to walk in life. I want to walk with God because that's what I was created for. At the end of Ezra's time, if you flip over to Nehemiah 8, if you flip over to Nehemiah 8, once they've, they've put in some really practical ways of repenting, they've moved on from this stuff, they've finished the walls, this is skipping forward some years, but they have this day, we read part of it earlier, where they recount their big story. They remind themselves of these cycles of disobedience, and they renew their covenant with God. They say, you know what? We want to be different. We're going to renew our covenant with God. And the beginning of that day starts in chapter 8. And I want to read 1 through 12 to finish up. And it says this, And all the people, they gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. You hear that? The people said, hey, bring the book. We want to hear God's word. They're eager. It's not the preacher who's excited to bring it. No, they like, come on, bring the book. Read it to us. Verse 2, so Ezra, the priest, brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. One of the reasons they didn't have life in their worship, they didn't have realness, is because they didn't know God's word. The spirit had not come and, and filled their temple, but they also did not know God's word. And they are crying out this day, God, teach us the word of God. Verse 4, it tells us a little bit more about how he did this and who he did this with. But skip to verse 5. It says, And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered him, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. And it tells us some of these men, Jeshua, I'm not even going to try because there's some ones I tried earlier in the week, and it wasn't good. It says, these men, verse 7, helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book from the law of God, hear it clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people could understand the reading. Verse 9, and Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest, and the scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, go your way, eat the fat, drink sweet wine, send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. And so the Levites calmed all the people, saying, be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and send portions and to make great rejoicing. Here it is. Because they understood the words that were declared to them. Think about it. They had been in exile all these years. 
They had heard about God. They didn't really know who he was. They didn't really have real worship. And Ezra comes back, and he just says, here, here's the word of God. Do you hear how they respond? There's tears. There's rejoicing. There's food. There's drink. There's laughter. There's celebration. There's falling on their face before God. I don't, I don't know the last time that you rejoiced because God's word was said in a language that you could understand, because it was taught to you in a way that you could understand it. Like These people rejoice, and their hearts are consumed because they understand who God is for the first time, some of them. So what does all this mean for us? Man, we can have all the stuff. <laughs> we can have a building and programs and staff and all kinds of religious experiences that go on in this building. Man, but if we don't have God's word and we don't rejoice because we can understand it and know God through it, we've totally missed out. If God's presence, the Spirit is not here with us and is not in our lives and we're not being led by it, then all of this is religion. All of this is useless in the end. What matters is a relationship with God, and the only way we can have that is through the Word, Jesus, right? I think it's also for us, it's important to know our, our story, right? It's important to get some perspective sometimes. To see, yeah, we're just like them. We have these cycles of disobedience. And yeah, okay, yeah, I come back to God. and Yeah, I'm excited. But we turn from our, we, the way we know to life. And we come back to sin. We come back to slavery. And then we cry out to God in repentance. And he, he restores us. And he, he delights to do that, right? But that's our story so many times. So whether you're here praising God, excited to hear his word, or you're over here walking away from him, God has not forsaken you. He is just like the God of the Old Testament. So many times they say, we were wicked and we rejected you, but you never left us. So no matter where you are today, God has not forsaken you. But hear the truth. He doesn't want you to stay there. He wants you to return, not to the land like these people. He doesn't want you to return to the temple, this sanctuary. No, he doesn't care about that. He wants you to return to him, to a relationship with him, one that's honest, one that's real. So if you would, would you stand with me today? We're going to have a time of response, a uh, time where if you need to come pray, if you need to find somebody and talk to them, if you need to sit down, if you need to stand, if you need to worship, if you, whatever, uh, we want to make that give you that freedom to do that. And let me pray for us. God, we need you. And we are no different than these people, God. God, we, we reject life, relationship with you, and we choose our own way. And in some of our families, that has been going on for decades and generations, God. And I pray, just like these people recommitted themselves to the covenant, God, that we would recommit ourselves to you, God. We would say, no, I'm turning away from that. I'm walking with you. I want life. I want to know you through your word. I want to know you and be led by the Spirit. God, and so I pray for those who are in all different places of that cycle. Um, I pray that you would redeem them, God. You, 
You delight to do that, and you are faithful even when we're faithless. And so I pray today that, that people would find freedom from their slavery. People would find life in you, uh, not religion, not tradition, God, but they would find life. And the only place that's found is what we were created for, is relationship with you, God. So be with us as we respond, as we worship, as we pray, um, and we'll give you all the praise. Yeah. 